the start of a new year, and that means we are all the closer, or so we hope, to reaching a Pillar 1 consensus. The OECD released the Pillar 1 blueprint on October 12th, 2020, but has been derailed by, like many things, the coronavirus pandemic. Welcome, everyone. My name's Matthew DeMello, and I host this here Fiona Show podcast with all the latest in transfer pricing deep dives into headlines and concepts. We're joined by Dr. Lorraine Eden, Professor Emerita of Management and Research, Professor of Law at Texas A&M University, to discuss the status of Pillar 1 in her insightful article on this topic, Winners and Losers, the OECD's Economic Impact Assessment of Pillar 1. In speaking of possessing great academic credentials in complicated fields, you can earn a CPE credit for listening to this podcast. Here's how it works. We're planting three CPE code words throughout the course of this show. Send all three to the Fiona Show at xbs.ai. That's all one word, the Fiona Show at xbs.ai. And we will respond with your certificate. But first, let's take a look at transfer pricing in the news. A short-term rental company is getting a long-term headache. The IRS is investigating Airbnb's income for tax years 2013 and 2016. The problem? Intellectual property. The IRS claims that Airbnb sold IP to a subsidiary in 2013. Airbnb reportedly had two subsidiaries, Airbnb International Holdings Limited an Airbnb International Unlimited company in Tax Haven, Jersey at the time. That's the country Jersey, not Snooky's stomping grounds. Thank you. The company received a draft notice of proposed adjustment in September 2020, along with the threat of a hefty bill. Damage, $1.3 billion for 2013 alone, peppered with additional interest and penalties. Airbnb isn't going down without a pillow fight. The company plans to, quote, vigorously contest it, unquote. Malaysia is tightening the reins on transfer pricing. The South Asian country published the Finance Act of 2020, which went into effect on January 1st, 2021. Here's what taxpayers can expect. There will be a penalty for failure to present contemporaneous transfer pricing documentation. We're talking 30 days from the formal request. The penalty amounts can range from 20,000 to 100,000 Malaysian ringgit, roughly 4,950 to 24,780 US dollars. The new measures also introduce a surcharge of no higher than 5% for transfer pricing adjustments even if the adjustment doesn't lead to additional tax. The new set of rules allow the tax authority to disregard a controlled transaction structure and reclassify it. The takeaway? The stakes just got higher in Malaysia. You've been warned. Sweden is ironing out the wrinkles in DOC6's transfer pricing requirements in November and December 2020. The tax agency released guidance that includes clarification of transfer pricing hallmarks. Here's what you need to know. The licensing of rights to intangible assets falls under the umbrella of hard-to-value intangibles. This means that existing royalty payments don't need to be reported unless there's been a drastic change to terms or conditions. As for safe harbors, the use of safe harbor rules requires a reporting obligation. The agency also addressed the three-year period when the EBIT result, which stands for earnings before interest and tax, is determined and applied to the hallmark on transfer pricing functions, risks, and assets. The verdict, it begins after the transfer is concluded. Hi, I'm Matthew DeMello, and you may know me as the host of the Fiona Show Cross-Border Solutions Weekly Transfer Pricing Podcast. And while I love to discuss transfer pricing, this podcast isn't the only place you can hear me doing it. Cross-Border Solutions recently relaunched Transfer Pricing University, a live webinar series where you can learn about modern-day transfer pricing, everything from methodologies to comparables to preparing documentation to meet country-specific regulations. Good stuff, I know. 
Chief Economist Mimi Song leads the sessions. I just ask the occasional obvious question. Since our program is NASBA certified, you can earn one CPE credit for joining each session. Pretty sweet. So what are you waiting for? Join us for Transfer Pricing University Weekly. Classes are free, so now you really have no reason to miss it. Sign up at xbs.ai slash tpu. Welcome back, everyone. I'm here with Dr. Lorraine Eden to talk about her conclusions gathered from the article, the OECD's Economic Impact uh, Assessment of Pillar 1. But it's been a long time since we've spoken to Dr. Eden, and a lot has happened in the time since. So just to kind of catch up on where all things are with Pillar 1 and also the year that we've had in the time since. Just to start off, tell us a little bit about where you are in the world right now and what is happening there on the COVID-19 scene. Well, Matthew, thank you again for inviting me back to be on the Fiona show. I really, truly uh, enjoy both participating and listening to this and looking forward to the questions that you and uh, Marilyn Strom are going to give me today. So, where am I? Uh, I'm sitting in College Station, Texas. It's a sunny day here and 48 degrees, going up to a high of 55. Um, COVID-19 has been rising rapidly, and I'm in Brazos County, and uh, yesterday there were more than 150 new cases in the county, so it's it used to be in the 20s and has really spiked, I assume, because, frankly, because of uh, people getting together over Christmas and New Year's. But it's a beautiful sunny day here. That's right. COVID-19, understatement of the year, has been dominating the news headlines for all of 2020. Can you refresh us on what's been happening in terms of Pillar 1 and Pillar 2? Where did the OECD leave off in the before times? Well, you remember, of course, that Pillar 1 is about the proposal that some tax base should be shifted from residents and source jurisdictions over to the so-called market jurisdictions. Pillar 2 is really about this idea that there are many jurisdictions where there's no taxes being paid. And so it would be helpful if there was a minimum global income tax that the multinationals would be paid very close to the U.S. guilty uh, regulations. So that's been the proposals which have gone through a variety of iterations. There was submissions last December and hearings in the early spring. Then basically the OECD published documents over the summer and made reports to different places. And then, as you said, on October 12th, Canadian Thanksgiving, American Columbus Day, released both new version of Pillar 1 called Pillar 1 Blueprint and the Pillar 2 Blueprint, along with an economic impact assessment and a list of 100 questions that tax professionals were invited to comment on with everything being due by December 14th. Basically, uh, as I said in my Leap of Faith article, the tax community had 63 days to read nearly 450,000 words, which is about 6,000 words a day, and answer 100 questions in the middle of a pandemic in the last quarter of the tax year and in the middle of a recession. Right. So it's been a, a hectic two months for the tax community putting in these, these proposals. They're in now. And a few days later, they were all published and are available for public download from the OECD website. And they got a lot of comments, surprisingly, number of, of entities provided comments, including I put in two uh, comments and talk to you about those if you like. And the hearings are scheduled for January 14 and 15. And certain individuals will be invited to talk. I have not been invited. <laughs> That's sort of where we are. Right, right. So it does pick up again fairly soon. It's not yes. necessarily something that's contingent on uh, what maybe we can describe as our universal light at the end of this tunnel, which is now the, the vaccine release. But even wherever it lands, January 15th or beyond, what are the next steps? Let's let's snap our fingers. COVID's over. What does it look like for these issues? When can we expect a multilateral resolution, if ever? 
Well, Matthew, your guess is as good as mine, frankly. You know, there's going to be hearings on the 14 and 15. The set of 100 questions were really very specific questions, like on the last round. So they're technical accounting questions that have to do with how losses should be taken into account and so on. So they're not sort of big picture questions. I assume that after the hearings are held, the secretariat will sit down and propose a new I have to change the term, can't call it blueprints the second time around, but I propose, make new proposals on both Pillar 1 and Pillar 2, and we will see where it, where it goes from there. My assumption is this thing could drag on for at least another year before there's any kind of settlement. Now, it is possible there may be movement on some things faster than others. So, if, in other words, if there's more cohesive agreement, like I suspect there is, on part B of pillar one. And there are things that can be moved on by individual jurisdictions without the assistance of others. In other words, other countries could put in versions of guilty, for example, those things could go first. But one of the things that's in this set of blueprint proposals is another multilateral agreement. You remember that on the first round of BEPS, there was an MLI, a multilateral instrument that is in place of which countries are variously signing on slowly and implementing even more slowly. So the proposal here is to actually have another one on top of that one. I think that's a fair ways off in the future. That's right. And just interrupting very briefly for our first and very simple CPE code word. We're keeping them easy this episode. And that first CPE code word is formulary, as in formulary apportionment. We're going to get into what that means, what it has to do with Pillar 1, of course, a little bit later in the show. Again, the CPE code word is formulary. Returning to our conversation. Now, to get to your fascinating article on the Pillar 1 blueprint titled Winners and Losers, the OECD's Economic Impact Assessment of Pillar 1, we know from some of your past work also featured on The Fiona Show, you have strong criticisms of Pillar 1. Can you tell us about those and and, uh, are they what prompted you to write this article? My sort of view has been that the criticisms of the arm's length standard have really been shooting the messenger, the messenger the was the arms like standard, but it's being blamed for things that it wasn't its fault. If the loopholes were plugged, which I think BEPS 1 basically did, then there wasn't any need to move to a different international tax rules. And the proposals that are being made here, particularly Pillar 1 Part A, was for a completely new set of rules that was uh, creating a new taxing right for market jurisdictions and new nexus definitions, sort of out of the blue, without any economic or legal really underpinning below them. So they're not principled changes in the rules. And frankly, the OECD admits it. If you look at the set of blueprint documents, they, they all talk regularly about political decisions, political decisions, political decisions. So this is a political compromise um, not based on economic principles. And and I think international tax rules really need to be driven by principles, not by, not by politics. So having said that, why did I write this article? In a, well, put yourself in my position on October the 12th, okay? October the 12th, like everybody else, I downloaded the uh, files off the internet. I watched the video on Zoom, um, where the Secretariat talked about them, and I looked at the materials and said, oh my Lord, (laughs) there's uh, an an incredible number of words has to be done in a very short time. I looked at the questions, counted the questions, realized there were a hundred of them that had to be done in 63 days. Many of it were very technical, designed for accountants, and I'm not an accountant, and I said, what can I do that might make a difference? And that's when the light bulb went on. Because I realized when I looked at this that there were basically three documents, one for Pillar 1, one for Pillar 2, and then this economic impact assessment. And when you read the economic impact assessment, what you saw was that basically five economists inside the secretariat, aided by a large group of individuals they were able to pull on, 
spent months and months doing these calculations, trying to figure out the economic impact of this big proposed pillar one and pillar two tax policy changes. And that's really important. I mean, anytime you're going to have a huge policy change, there should be an economic impact assessment. We should know advance what the effects are going to be. And there have been lots of these in the past. You know, many economic impact assessments are typically done. So that wasn't new. But what was new was the results weren't shared. In other words, when you read the economic impact assessment, what it said is the results were so political, such a hot potato. Can you imagine? The results were so political that the decision was not to release them. All that was going to be released was this little picture that's at the bottom of one page and the top of the next page showing in sort of graphs about who was going to win and who was going to lose. And frankly, as an academic and someone who's written a lot on ethics and just finished this summer publishing a paper on evidence-based policy analysis that talks about the importance of evidence and transparency, I was horrified. I was horrified that we were going to have these huge changes with basically none of the results at the individual jurisdiction level being available. And interrupting very briefly for our second CPE code word, keeping them very simple this episode, the second CPE code word is blueprint. Again, the second CPE code word is blueprint. And back to our conversation. But let's add some context here. Pillar one has three different amounts, amount A, amount B, amount C. Uh, can you define each one or why do you focus on amount A in your article? First of all, because I think it's most important, but let me just explain what each of them are and then we'll, we'll talk about that. Amount A is the single largest major change in the international tax rules in my lifetime. I mean, I don't want to understate this. It is, as far as I am concerned, the single biggest, largest change in the tax rules in my lifetime. There's been no other. It dominates all others. And it's a huge leap of faith. It's taking the existing rules on residence and source for international tax and then imposing on top of that a new set of rules about market jurisdictions. And the two rules are going to sit one on top of one another and they clearly conflict. I think the complexity will skyrocket. The number of tax disputes will skyrocket. This is <laughs> I called it in one of the earlier pieces, Hicksunt Dracons, Here Come Dragons. You know, you think about the leap over. So this is the first reason. And, and so that's, that's amount A. Right, right. Amount B is much smaller. It's basically saying it's very focused on what are known as uh, low risk or limited risk distributors. So basically, if a multinational is selling into India, for example, so it's an American firm and it's on the ground sales in India here, it's probably got a local distributor. And that distributor is responsible for making sure the sales are sold, maybe booking the sales, maybe be doing advertising, some local marketing. And at the end of the day, that local distributor is allocated some share of the multinational profits based on its functions, assets, and risks. And there's been a tendency by multinationals to treat a lot of these distributors as low risk, limited risk, and basically not pay them a very high rate of return on the grounds that there are lots of other firms that would have been capable of doing this. You could have contracted out the function. So the returns have not been great, maybe somewhere in the 5 to 15% range as a percent of sales or as a percent of, of the cost base incurred. And, you know, from the Indian government perspective, that profit base is too low. Um, the size of that base determines how much the Indian government can put in terms of taxes on it. And so there's been a general presumption in market jurisdictions that the foreign distributors don't pay enough tax. And that's actually been the case here in the United States, too. There was a well-known case that ever, never went to court on GlaxoSmithKline, which was a British multinational. And we had a marketing distribution here in the United States distributor. And the IRS went after GlaxoSmithKline and said, 
you know, that distributor is not paying enough tax here. And it did settle out of court and more taxes were paid by GSK here in the United States on that distributor function. So basically the proposal in B is to set a floor for that distributor function. So regardless of wherever the distributors were worldwide, there would be at least a minimum floor below which you could not pay. And so part of the issue is how low should the floor be? And there are a lot of people who think that different things should influence the floor. This is a, a fairly narrowly defined question that is going to be based on, I think, the economics of what should happen. And frankly, I, I, as long as there's allowance for facts and circumstances, it can be handled within the existing rules. Now, you're right. There was a Part C. Uh, that Part C was last December, not this past December, but a year earlier. And after the round of public hearings were held last spring, Amount C was simply subsumed inside of, of A. So basically the first day on the new taxing right, the new nexus rules, there is no C anymore. It's gone. So all we're talking about is the, the very first one here, uh, Part A, which is what I said, the single largest change in the tax rules in my lifetime. And then Part B, which I think is a much smaller, narrower issue that I think could be, and my guess is going to be a fair amount of consensus around and could be handled and could move forward potentially to a resolution this spring. Just to summarize here for these amounts, you have amount A, the distribution of group profits, as you were just saying, this is this is the big radical change. This is formulary apportionment yes. as opposed to arm's length principle. Amount B is taxation of in-country marketing and distribution agreements through an applied fixed taxable profit margin. Is this essentially like a minimum wage for distributors? You know, in hindsight, it probably is, Matt, in the sense that it's saying that the return on sales for distributors in market jurisdictions should compensate them fairly for their functions, assets, and risks. And there clearly has been in the past an incentive to strip those distributors and say, you're limited and you don't deserve much more than X percent of your sales. It's also an attempt to argue that what the distributors are doing has marketing intangibles. So they're not just limited risk or low risk, they actually have some intangibles they've created on their own. And I think based on facts and circumstances, there are lots of cases where that will be the case. There'll be others where it won't. In other words, Distributors are not the same. They range from really very simple commissionaire structures all the way up to very sophisticated, full-fledged distributors that do have their own marketing intangibles. And my own view is there's all there should be facts and circumstances cases. So for me, I kind of think of this uh, um, this idea behind Part B as really almost being like a safe harbor. If you declare at least X. Uh, percent of sales, then we'll leave you alone. Right. Right. And we won't have to have more disputes. For example, even in the IRS code, there's an opportunity for certain types of services to be considered to be low risk services. And there is a safe harbor that could be provided below. You know, if you do the safe harbor, you're okay. And some services are in, they're called angel services and other services are, are out and cannot be included. So those kinds of U.S. rules we already have on services could, for me, at least provide the basis for doing something similar for Part B. And frankly, if I'd had enough time, yeah. I would have made a third submission to the OECD on exactly Part B. And frankly, I ran out of time. Lorraine, that's just going to have to be our next episode. <laughs> I, I am. I tell you, I, I have three or four more papers lined up now. <laughs> I do. And that's, that's a part B a paper global is pandemic, on that list. A grim economic forecast. Feeling the squeeze? An R&D tax credit can help lower your burn. If you qualify, the IRS and some state governments will give you a tax credit equal to 10% of your company's spend on development activities. You can even take the credit against payroll taxes if you're in the red. All you have to do is claim it. 
So what's stopping you? If an expensive application process is turning you off, sorry, now you really have no excuse. Cross-Border Solutions AI-driven R&D tax credit software eliminates the need for pricey consultants and allows you to apply for R&D credits all over the world for one low fee. After all, why should you have to spend your whole R&D tax credit on getting your R&D tax credit? It's your money. Keep more of it with Cross Border Solutions, the global leader in AI-driven tax solutions. Request a demo today. Visit xbs.ai/rd. That's xbs.ai/rd. In your article, you look at the calculation of amount A, you define amount A under the Pillar 1 blueprint as an M&E's pre-tax profit that is to be moved to the market jurisdictions. Of course, you have a formula for amount A in your article. What problems, questions, concerns does amount A pose for transfer pricing? Well, I think there's there's multiple issues here. Okay, the first issue is, um, and this is kind of goes back to something that you said earlier. When I say that amount A for me is the most radical change in the international tax rules, it's really kind of for two reasons. The second reason is formulary apportionment because the formula does include formulary apportionment, which is the use of a fixed percentage to move things around, all right? The, so to reallocate a pie, it has a variety of calculations, some of which are fixed numbers. So that formula apportionment is the second problem. The first problem is that the existing rules, the rules that I grew up under and that are still in place, are based on residence and, and source jurisdictions. Residence jurisdictions where the parent of the multinational is, the home country. Source jurisdictions where are all the subsidiaries and branches, all the affiliates of the multinational are located. So residence and source rules assume that the entity is attached or effectively connected to a jurisdiction. The formal legal term is a permanent establishment, but basically it just means you're close enough that the jurisdiction can tax you. Okay, so you're either a residence jurisdiction where the parent is or you're a source jurisdiction where the affiliates are and you're effectively connected. And so both residence and source can tax you. The real change in this is the decision that market jurisdictions should also be considered effectively connected and should also be able to take a tax bite. And these this pillar one, amount A, is that new taxing right that says if you're a market jurisdiction, you get a piece of the pie too. And the, these rules are going to be laid on top of the other rules. And sorting out how they work was part of the task of those five economists <laughs> and uh, who tried to do the numbers. And also the task, uh, as it turns out in chapter seven of the pillar one blueprint, which tries to determine who pays. So as you know, this article is titled, Who are the winners and the losers, right? The winners are the ones who, who get the money, the market jurisdictions, and the losers are going to be the ones who are going to have to pay, and they will be the residents and source jurisdictions. The question I was trying to figure out, because you can't tell it in the numbers that are provided by the economic impact assessment, is which winners and which losers, which countries are the jurisdictions that'll gain tax base and therefore can tax that base, and which jurisdictions are actually going to lose that base and therefore are going to have to make up the revenues possibly by taxing you and me in personal income tax or getting it through VAT or sales taxes or some other way. When we mention source jurisdictions, discussions about formulary apportionment you know, elsewhere, I've, I've always seen it as like that just basically ends up being code for the United States, at least when it comes to, you know, digital service taxes, because all of, you know, your Facebooks, your Amazons, your mm -hmm. uh, et cetera, they're based in the United States. Is is yes. is that the fair way of looking at it? Well, the, you're quite right that the very largest of the born digitals, uh, one of the terms I think is kind of an interesting term that I 
believe I might have been the first one to come up with some years ago is Born Digital and Going Digitals. The Born Digitals are firms that have really been born since the internet um, revolution. And, and everything they do is really online on the internet. And that includes, you know, for example, Etsy and would in, include um, Amazon, for example. Firms basically created many ways after 1995. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas the going digitals are the ones that were their traditional brick and mortar firms that have moved over. So, for example, Microsoft, I would think of as a, a going digital. The firm started out by making laptops. Dell is a going digital firm. And so the true born digitals really do sell into a jurisdiction by putting up like Facebook has a website that's say in Singapore and uh, you and I, if I were in Singapore might be on Facebook and my information is collected by Facebook and then bundled up and sold to advertisers who would really like to sell on the Facebook page. Or, you know, we have some kind of other hub. Many of these are platform firms, but not all of them are platform firms. And I think a HomeAway, for example, Uber, as entities that are engaged in, in this. And many of those are in the United States, not all of them. And over time, I suspect there are going to be more and more of them. What you need, and I think part of the reason why they started here, is the Internet connections here were earlier. The uh, U.S. rules were very open to their creation, and we didn't tax them. Right. So basically, there was a moratorium on Internet, on e-commerce. There was no taxation of e-commerce. It really isn't until the very last few years with the Wayfair decision, for example, that e-commerce transactions in the United States have even been taxed at the local state level. We had a very good how shall I, what we would call an international business of country specific advantages here that led to the rise of Silicon Valley Mm -hmm. and to the rise of these very large multinationals in the United States. But there are other silicons elsewhere Mm -hmm. and there will be others that arise and take those places too over time. Yes. Yes. Uh, Mexico comes to mind as, as kind of a popular place to point as, as a next uh, tech base. And interrupting one last time for our third and final CPE code word, and that code word is hub, is an investment hub. Again, that third CPE code word is hub, H-U-B, keeping it nice and simple this episode. Returning to our conversation, though, but in your article, you group jurisdictions into four categories, high income, middle income, low income, and investment hubs. Uh, Which category benefits from amount A pillar one proposals if adopted and which occur the largest losses? Well, um, hmm. that actually is a really loaded question, (laughs) but I'll try to give you sort of a simple answer. Um, I picked those groupings because those are the groupings the economic impact assessment uses. So, in other words, they show you in picture form four groups, and each of those groups has at least 20 countries in it, and the groupings are World Bank groups on high-income, middle-income, low-income, and investment hubs. Now, they do tell you in the back of the book who's in which category, and I actually did go out and have a look, because I did some work on the investment hubs, for example, and I get a different list than the economic impact assessment use. For example, Hungary is in that list of 24 investment hubs, and I don't think Hungary belongs there. And there are other countries that aren't that I think should have been. So I use the groupings that the economic impact assessment used, even though I'm not sure they're the right groupings. Having said that, let me just talk to you what the economic impact assessment found. The economic assessment found basically that middle and low income jurisdictions should gain and investment hubs should lose. And the more that was reallocated from residents and source jurisdictions to market jurisdictions, the bigger the winners and the bigger the losers. So basically it looks like investment hubs are losing and everybody else is getting something. So if you got what 140 jurisdictions, there's, Uh, 222 in the estimates that are done here, I think there's 140 jurisdictions in the inclusive framework. Unless you're an investment hub, you're probably feeling pretty good. It looks like you're going to win. The other thing I should tell you is in the economic impact assessment, it's a wipe. 
in the sense that the global impact of adding the losers and the winners together is close to zero. So that's the estimate. Now, when I unbundled this and I started to do my own calculations, I got a finer picture than what is shown here. So here's what I found. What I found basically is middle income jurisdictions. There's 105 in the group win. And it doesn't really matter whether they're home to multinationals or host to multinationals. They win on both accounts. Okay. Investment hubs lose. I mean, they really lose. They potentially lose big. Right. And then the high income ones, it's a bit of a wipe. In other words, they lose if you're a home jurisdiction. So this would be the United States, then high income home jurisdiction is going to lose. But the United States is also a host jurisdiction, all right? And so it's going to gain as a host jurisdiction. There's some trade-off. Right. So what happens here is the, the estimates I come up with are a little bit different. And then I went on to drill down again. And I said, okay, let's just look at the investment hubs. Well, if you go back and look in the back of the data in the back of the economic impact assessment book, what you find out is they group the hubs by geography, which I think was a mistake. And they group the hubs into um, hubs in the Americas, which are almost all of them Caribbean islands, Europe, and other, and the others basically Asia. And if you look at those hubs, some of those hubs are five OECD member countries. Uh, some of those hubs are, as I said, uh, would include Singapore, Hong Kong, Luxembourg, Netherlands are in here, Ireland's in here. And what you get is a very different result. What you find out is the America's hubs are the losers, at least in my calculations. In other words, when I talk Caribbean islands, I talk Caribbean islands losing. But the European hubs, gain, which is fascinating to me. Mm. And I actually did it again, trying to pay attention to, let's just take the middle and low income countries out and look who gains and loses. And the group that includes China gains, and the group that includes India loses. So it is possible to drill down more finely, as I've tried to do in this winners and losers article. But at the end of the day, who wins? My prediction is middle income countries and European investment hubs. And who loses? Caribbean islands. Right. Now, the OECD's economic impact assessment of the Pillar 1 blueprint has its own set of intricate problems and data issues that impacted Amount A. What are those issues? Well, first of all, um, I think it's important to note that the formula looks simple. It has six components, and you multiply them together. Well, well, there's one subtraction, and the rest is right. multiplication. doesn't look too difficult. I'm not even asking anybody to square anything or do square roots <laughs> or any complicated math, right? But you take those six components and drill down. Each of them has multiple, multiple calculations that lie behind them, hundreds of calculations that lie behind them. And if you, you know, you read the economic impact assessment and you understand the work that was involved here, you see what a Herculean effort these economists did. And I truly applaud them. I don't know any of them. Okay. I don't know any of them. We are not connected on LinkedIn, <laughs> but I am really totally impressed with, with what they did. They did the best of what they had, which we, we, you know, we consider, yeah, I don't know if you know the term bricolage. Bricolage means to make do with what you have. Uh, growing up as a kid, that's what my mother did. We bricolage, we made do with what we had. These five economists engaged in serious bricolage and really did, uh, I think, an amazing job. But one of the things you learn when you have a really, really complex set of calculations is room for error is high. And so that's why you want sensitivity tests, you want transparency, you want lots of people to look at it and make suggestions. You want robustness checks to make sure of that. And so that's just the straight economists. Now, 
I started out by telling you that the whole idea behind this was there was no economic foundation behind it. And even the OECD secretariat admits this is politics. So let me bring the politics back in. The formula is a pure math formula. The economic impact assessment is an assessment by a group of very good economists using the best data they had to figure out what was going on, and then they couldn't release it <laughs> because it was so political. And so what happened is we really don't know here what the results are. But the second shoe drop, all right, is that if it really is truly political, then there's lots of opportunity to game the system. In complexity lies opportunity, right? Right. This looks simple. It's not. It is highly complex. And in complexity lies opportunity, and opportunity creates politics. Politics creates attempts to game the system. Now that we've kind of outlined the issues, how can they be resolved? Well, I, I think the simplest way is unbundling. In other words, we haven't even talked about Pillar 2, but each of the pillars has components to it. Pillar 1 has two components. Pillar 2 has actually a whole variety of bits and pieces to it. And I think if these were, you know, in effect, we got rid of the Pillar 1 and Pillar 2 nomenclature and just looked at them as a smorgasbord or a menu of possible options. Some of these options could be moved on reasonably quickly. For example, I think the fair likelihood that you could move on um, part B of pillar one, which is the one we talked about in terms of the limited risk distributors and in effect setting a potential floor for them or a safe haven for them. There's also components in pillar two possibly the guilty, you know, the guilty base, the globe, uh, what I call global minimum tax proposal we talked about on an earlier podcast. It's possible there might be some movement there, but I think there is more dispute. And frankly, on that one, given that we now have the Democrats having a majority in the House, and as of this morning, now having equal weight in the Senate with Kamala Harris having the opportunity to be the tie casting vote that gives the Democrats the opportunity to really move strongly forward over the next at least two years until we have elections again in the United States. Why the U.S. has so many elections, I don't know, but um, that's a different story. And uh, I'm from a system where that um, a Canadian system where we don't we don't do it that way. Anyway, <laughs> in the United States, for at least for the next two years, the Democrats have control of the House and the Senate. And potentially, there will be major changes to guilty. Uh, Biden's already said he's planning on changing guilty. So I think the um, OECD secretariat should just back burner this and see if they can come up with one a proposal that mm -hmm. most countries, including the U.S., can sign on to. Seems to me if the U.S. doesn't sign, and the U.S. has said it's not going to sign on to Amount A, and I hope the IRS and the U.S. Treasury commit to that they should not sign on to amount a i think it's possible to get a proposal on part b of pillar one but there's um, so my first thing is unbundle unbundle and deal with the ones you can deal with and frankly i would back burner the rest of them and i would deep six <laughs> amount a completely deep six it, it right. is a mistake of course. And when you say unbundle, it it sounds more like deal with the complexity at the surface. Don't dress it up and call it simple when it's just not. Uh, partly that. I think what I'm saying is a little bit different. What I'm saying is it looks like there aren't very many proposals, but in fact, there are. And they're discrete, different proposals. One is this amount A proposal, then there's amount B, both of those in pillar one. Pillar two has a global minimum tax, and then it has like, I think, four other separate proposals 
proposals that have to do with whether source jurisdictions have the right to tax income that is in their jurisdictions. There's also questions that have to do with the definition of permanent establishment and whether a permanent establishment, in other words, do you have effective nexus, could be broadened. We haven't even talked about the fact that the United Nations has also weighed into this this summer with a new proposal for a change in the UN tax convention to include a proposal which could call 12B, which would allow the taxing of automated digital services in market jurisdiction countries, in effect creating a new taxable nexus there. So there's a, a lot of these proposals. Now, each and every one of those is going to have, as you're right, a bunch of steps under them. But I think trying to, the OECD has been trying to sell the whole package and trying to get the whole package through. And I think uh, there are some things that can be moved on. Oh, I should say, we haven't even talked about two others. Well, we did talk about one. We haven't talked about the other. We haven't talked about the dispute settlement proposals, Matthew, and they're huge. So one is this proposal for a brand new multilateral instrument that's going to be added on the top. So a new convention to be added on the top on top of all these others. But the other is hidden in behind the scenes, and you have to look for it, is a proposal to create a new entity that is going to have binding compulsory arbitration. And I'm actually writing a paper on that too, if I can find time, of which I find it very difficult to imagine that, well, particularly the US would sign on to. But the idea is if there are disputes, and I'm convinced there's going to be lots of them, the way the OECD Secretariat is proposing to settle it is to create a new body, a new body, presumably housed at the OECD Secretariat, that will engage in arbitrating these disputes. It will be compulsory if the individual jurisdiction can't settle it, or they can't settle it bilaterally, and it will be binding, no appeal. So, you know, again, I would back partner, put that on the shelf for, and maybe never go there. I'm not sure. But um, so I'm for unbundling, dealing with the ones we can deal with, put the others on the shelf, and then deep six some of the rest. That's right. Now, what do you think the OECD should take away from your findings? Well, I'm not sure they read them, first of all. Um, but I, I like to frame this question of your your God Emperor of the OECD. I, I crown you God Emperor of the OECD. You you make the rules. How well, should it work? I think the OECD should step back and basically take personal reputation out of the process and look at this from the point of view of evidence based policy making. Evidence-based policy making, and I wrote some on this this summer, is the idea that when you go to make policy changes, it should be based on good evidence. All the parties should be involved. You understand that these are what we call wicked problems, and they are wicked problems, and that all the parties need to be at the table and need to come to a consensus. And you may need to muddle through. You may need to do this in small steps. You don't have to get everything done at once and try to get everybody signed on and in order to you know, make this big ship all sign it, all move in one direction. Evidence base, I would say, come in. If I were there, I would say, let's step back and let's talk about evidence-based policymaking. Let's share the results. Let's look at the data talk about the quality of the data and share the results with everybody, not just with the jurisdictions themselves, but with the other economists around here. And let's talk about which ones really are sensitive ones. And we're, if we don't have the data, don't move on those. If we can't get political consensus, don't move on those. Let's move on the ones where we have good data and where we do have everybody at the table. And if we have to muddle through and move slowly, that's okay. Let's muddle through and move slowly. One of the things I haven't mentioned is, you know, we went through a huge round of BEPS-1 changes, right? And the multilateral instrument is really just come into force. And, you know, not all the countries have signed on. I think less than a third of countries have signed on. Things are happening, but they're moving slowly. 
I've argued elsewhere, it is a good news story on the first round of BEPS ones, and we really ought to wait. It may be that the problem we're talking about will go away, that BEPS-1 will solve most of what we saw as a lot of problems with tax avoidance. Now, that doesn't necessarily handle the born digitals. Born digitals don't have permanent establishments. They engage in remote sales. I understand why market jurisdictions may are worried and would like to tax that base and why digital sales taxes and digital services taxes are being put on. Oh, and we could talk about that for a minute if we have time or maybe another time. In this case, I think the solution is to add another chapter to the OECD transfer pricing guidelines and the UN transfer pricing manual. In other words, both of these started at the TP guidelines. The very first TP guidelines came out in, oh, gee, I'm not going to remember the first one. I think 1995 was the first transfer pricing guidelines, maybe earlier than that. And they dealt with goods and a little bit on services and then eventually added intangibles and then added a chapter on restructuring when we had the crash in 2008, 2009. Now just added a chapter on financial instruments, which is new, which isn't, we don't even have a chapter on financial instruments in the U.S. 482 regulations yet. Why can't we write a chapter on the born digitals and think about transfer pricing of digital transactions, both firms that are wholly born digital, and then specifically on those kinds of transactions that are digital transactions? and add a new chapter to the guidelines on transfer pricing where digital transactions are involved. So my own view would be, let me just sort of go back and say, if I were <laughs> king of the castle here, or queen of the castle, yes. um, what I would do is say, we are going to use evidence-based policy. Where there is no evidence, we will not move. Where we can't get political agreement, we will not move. We will move only on those ones where we have good, reliable evidence it's been shared, everybody's on board, and we move on that. In terms of the born digitals, all right, and digital transactions, let's get started on building a chapter uh, for the transfer pricing guidelines, both at the OECD one and in the UN manual, all right? Right. And number three, let's wait and track BEPS-1. We need to really track how BEPS won, and encourage jurisdictions to sign. We need to get more jurisdictions signing the LMI. If we hadn't spent two years on this process, think of the time and effort that could have gone into getting the BEPS won in place. Indeed. I, I suspect historians many decades later after your reign as goddess emperor of the OECD <laughs> might look back and say that that would be the opposite of what the OECD did here, which is come up with the plan, then find the evidence later. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm not, they tried to do best evidence, the economic impact. They just didn't share it. Mm. And I, a lot of that evidence is soft. I talk in the paper a little bit, Matt, about the difference between hard data and soft data. There's a lot of soft data. A lot of soft data. Uh, argue, to some, maybe maybe the, the most problematic kind. Uh, but what are the next steps for the OECD in terms of Pillar 1 and Pillar 2? Is there a table for a rollout plan? I don't know. Um, I don't have a seat at the table. Nobody's invited me to speak at the hearings on January 14th and 15th. I am not privy to background discussions here. My assumption is it will be full steam ahead, unfortunately. Uh, well, and as it goes with these organizations and these institutions. Note to multinational companies everywhere. If you think the coronavirus has affected your bottom line, take a look at how it's devastated the economies of governments around the world. And where do you think tax authorities will look to make up for all that lost revenue? That's right, your transfer pricing. You can't afford to be non-compliant, but then you probably can't afford to pay for an overpriced consultant who bills by the hour either. Oops, sorry, big four. We've got the answer. Cross-border solutions, AI-powered transfer pricing software keeps you in compliance by preparing accurate, hyper-localized reports that protect you from transfer pricing audits, 
penalties and adjustments. And our technology is available for one flat fee, a fraction of what you'd pay a big name consultant. Again, apologies, Big Four. Stay in compliance and on budget with cross-border solutions, AI-driven transfer pricing software. It's no wonder we're the global leader in AI-driven tax solutions. There we go again. I'm so sorry, Big. You know what? Wait, who am I kidding? Sign up for a free demo of cross-border solutions transfer pricing technology today at xbs.ai slash tp. That's xbs.ai slash tp. Lorraine, we thank you so much for being on the show. We're not quite done yet, though. We are done with the hard questions, or at least what I like to think are the hard questions. <laughs> and this was a very insightful discussion. But before we close, we have time for my favorite part of the show. We call it What We Want to Know. This is our rapid fire round of kind of, you know, career perspective, getting to know you a little bit better. We put our transfer pricing expert in the hot seat. And always our first question is, are you ready? I'm ready. <laughs> what are your resolutions for 2021? Anyway, so my resolution for this year, my number one resolution is I would really like to have the time to go back to writing my transfer pricing book. I guess a second resolution as uh, one that most people have is like to get more exercise uh, on here. And third resolution is I'd like to have a little bit more fun. I hope we can get out and travel. I hope my husband and I can both get our vaccination soon. I hope everybody else gets vaccinated and that happens soon and that we can resume closer to a more normal life of what we used to have. If you could go back in time before COVID, before maybe pillar one, pillar two, all the way to the beginning of your career, give yourself a piece of transfer price and career advice, what would it be? Um, I guess, I don't know when one piece of advice, I guess um, I started out in transfer pricing and it was really, really early, Matt, long before everybody else, even before people knew what the term was. I got out of it for a while. I'm kind of sorry I did, but I was in, got involved in other things. I think the one thing I would do if I look back at my career, I one of the things I've really truly enjoyed doing is tax controversy. And I'm sorry I didn't get involved in tax controversy sooner. What I mean by that is I teach transfer pricing. I write about transfer pricing, but I really had stayed away from tax court cases and disputes disputes involving transfer pricing. I've been doing more of those the last, I don't know, I guess 10, 10 years or so, and found that I really like it. They're a lot of fun. The really, truly hard problems go there. And so they make me at the top of my game. I get to work with people who I think are really, truly good at this. We can think about hard issues. And I've discovered it's a little bit like being at the top of a roller coaster, <laughs> but I find it fun. So I guess if I had to give myself a piece of career advice, I'm sorry I didn't get involved in, and I really couldn't as a full-time academic but I would have liked to have done more of these controversy cases sooner. Yes, indeed. And what have you learned about your work habits through the pandemic? I work too much. <laughs> spend too much time. Spend frankly, spend far too much time at at my at my computer doing Zoom, as you do. I moved my office home after I retired, so I have an office. Everything's here in one space. It's easy to come in in the morning and all of a sudden wake up and realize it's one o'clock. No. <laughs> that is, and need to break. Uh, my husband and I have lunch and stuff. So um, I don't have children at home. I don't have grandchildren at home. There's really just uh, Chuck and I. And uh, there's lots of interesting things to do. And I'm, I don't lack for things to talk about. And so I've discovered my problem is that uh, I work. <laughs> I need to break that more. hit. Yeah, I think that hit a group close of to people, home. There are a group of people, I think, who are like me, who have discovered that by not going to work, we actually get more done by staying home. <laughs> and, uh, and, and you can get in the flow and you wake up and realize the hours have gone by. That's 100% been my experience in COVID, especially similarly, I don't, I don't have kids yet. Um, or in like to think, et cetera. I don't have, you know, it's just me, my significant other. Well, there you go. Yeah, what is your favorite comfort food? Oh, I think I'm like most everybody else here, chocolate. 
I've discovered, <laughs> I've discovered, frankly, there's a, a, a sugar-free chocolate uh, Hershey's that you can get in little squares that, um, in the, and it's a dark, bittersweet chocolate. It's pretty addictive. <laughs> you have you have chosen the correct answer, and you will win a prize. I recommend uh, sugar-free. <laughs> and what are you reading right now? What I'm reading right now is I don't have you ever heard of Louise Penny? I am not familiar with Louise Penny. Louise Penny's a Canadian who lives just outside Montreal who writes murder mysteries about a little town called Three Pines. And she's written 16 murder mystery books, and I've read them all. And I'm currently reading her newest, which is called All the Devils Are Here, which is centered in Paris. The, it's about an inspector, Gamache, who's the head of the security police force in Montreal. And uh, he uh, solves crimes, many of which take place in and around Trois-Pins, the Three Pines, the little village outside, which is in the middle of nowhere. It, the book is regularly, when she started, I, I think I, I started reading, Still Life's the first one, still one of my favorites. When I started reading her very early on before she became well-known and her new books are now always on the top of the bestseller list. So if you haven't read any Louise Penny, start with number one, Still Life. And uh, the characters will grow on you. They appear going back and forth. Um, and it's uh, one of my most favorite sets of books. I am a big, big Raymond Chandler fan. So uh-huh. all, any and all whodunits, big Raymond Chandler, <laughs> you know, with with giant grains of salt. I love Ian Fleming, if you're familiar. Right. And yeah. Christy. Uh, yeah. Yes. Yep. Love it. Lorraine, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks so much for for going a little extra long and and sharing your expertise with us. We really appreciate it. As oh, always. Matt, it's always a pleasure. Thank you for uh, inviting me onto the show. And it's uh, a real treat. And we want to thank everyone at home for tuning in. If you haven't already, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Come on, guys. It's okay. I'll keep reminding you. It's it's really no trouble at all. But when you're there, you can also tune into our Transfer Pricing in the News podcast. That's the Fiona Show, Hot Off the Press. All of your transfer pricing headlines and reg changes in under 10 minutes. My name's Matthew DeMello, and Cross Border Solutions has made an investment in my employment to provide you hosting, editing, and engineering skills as applied to this podcast. Christy Clements is our associate producer. Marilyn Mitchum-Strom is our executive producer. Until next week, everyone, stay safe and wear a mask. We'll catch you then.